We're in Matthew. Uh, Matthew. <laughs> he knows how to humble the arrogant. He does. He does. But don't you call me arrogant? <laughs> Uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. And uh, if you're on Facebook, you may have noted that uh, you know, I'd written my sermon on this text on Thursday, and then Friday's devotion from Ted Tripp was on this text. So <laughs> I, am not, I did not revise much of anything, because we were, we were simpatico right there, man. So... He's only Ted Tripp. I mean, he's only Paul Tripp. He ain't Jesus. So. 9 to 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? Uh, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took the, a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such, as, uh, such, one chi uh, such child, well, I can't speak today or read, in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, or not simply me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Maybe this will get better. Father, we are strangers and aliens in this world, precisely because our citizenship is in heaven. Uh, help us to understand and to believe your word so that we're filled with wisdom and that we're filled with understanding uh, to bear good fruit while we live in this world, while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, and while we wait for the renewal of the earth. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. First, we knew him as Cassius Clay. He won a gold medal as a light heavyweight in the 1960 Olympics. By 1964, he was facing Sonny Liston, and I think we've got one of the most memorable pictures of the 20th century there, as he floored the heavyweight champion of the world and became the heavyweight champion of the world. Soon he would change his name to Muhammad Ali, and he wanted everyone to know that I am the greatest. That he floated like a butterfly and he stung like a bee. He was a great fighter. He was a great showman. He was a three-time heavyweight champion, partially because of all of his legal troubles that led to him being stripped of the title at one point. He was, in a sense, the greatest, at least in terms of boxing. But often when you tell everyone the greatest, people begin to start to wonder about who you are. Today's text is all about that quest, that desire, that longing within us to be the greatest. Probably not the greatest boxing champion in the world, but to be the greatest something. 
So let's see what this text and what Jesus has to say about that desire to be the greatest. Remember that Jesus has been discussing his death and his resurrection and the disciples, first the the big three disciples, didn't quite understand what he was talking about. And then when Jesus gets back to the rest of the disciples, the whole 12 really don't seem to understand what he means by his death and his resurrection. And so what do his disciples discuss? As we look at our map, we note that they, of course, have been traveling. Uh, they've, They've been going from Caesarea Philippi way up there by Mount Hermon, and they're, they're going through Galilee, and they're going to end up in Capernaum, which is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. Ultimately, they're going to end up in Jerusalem, but Capernaum, remember, has been this, the fishing city that has served as the base of operations for Jesus in his teaching, preaching, healing ministry throughout Galilee. It's about a four-day journey by foot from Caesarea Philippi all the way down to Capernaum. Remember? There's no cars, no planes, nothing of that sort, and so they hoofed it. It wasn't a stagecoach either. No cart for them to ride on. And what frequently happens, we know that Jesus was repeatedly talking to them and instructing them about this suffering and this death and this being raised again in the third days. But we know if you've taken a long hike with people that that something happens. That there's times when you're all together and you're all talking about the same thing, but there's also times when there's smaller groups on the trail and there's discussions going on between each other. And you might overhear part of what one group is talking about, um, and they might overhear part of what you're talking about. And so that's sort of the dynamic that's here. Let's not uh, think that they were always all 12 huddled around Jesus, uh, discussing this the whole time, that over the course of these four days, there were different groups of men functioning together, walking in proximity to one another, and having a variety of conversations. And so when they arrive at the house, Jesus begins to ask them a question. Now, they've arrived safely, which is good. They're at the house, which means that they're getting rested, they're getting refreshed. They've probably washed a lot of the dirt of the road off of their bodies and things like that. Whenever we, whenever we travel and go through an airport, I'm, I'm told that I'm supposed to shower before I go into bed because of all the airport germs that have accumulated upon my body and everyone else's body on our, our journey across the country. Jesus makes an inquiry. He asks a question. Now, this word can go anywhere from simply asking a question to interrogation. I don't think Jesus was interrogating them. But Jesus was asking a pointed question in order to get to the condition of their hearts, not so that he would know it, uh, but so that they would begin to see the condition of their hearts. And that's often what Jesus does. He asks us questions, and that's what a good counselor does. A good counselor will ask questions that reveal to you the condition of your heart.
what were you discussing on the way? <laughs> it seems sort of innocuous. We were discussing the Red Sox or politics or whatever. But Jesus had observed them debating or deliberating amongst themselves. And he wants to bring that to the forefront. He wants to bring their obvious concerns into the light instead of letting them remain in the darkness. Now, obviously, they had questions that they did not ask Jesus. We've seen that already. Jesus didn't want to return the favor and not ask them questions that he had. But what we see is they kept silent. Why did they keep silent? Because it says they had argued. But what possibly could they have argued about? About who was the greatest? Silence. Let's start with the silence. This is the only time Peter keeps his mouth shut. (laughs) Really? Even Peter has the wherewithal to realize this is a time to be thought wise as opposed to be proven a fool, as the proverb goes. But what really is going on is that their pride has been exposed. And they don't want to own up to it. (laughs) There's a poem that our kids all learned as they went through uh, the homeschooling process and Amy and I will refer to this poem on frequent occasion because it comes true in our home, and that poem is Mr. Nobody. Because who cut the carpet? Mr. Nobody. No one admits to this carpet, that chunk that I find on the floor. Apparently the dogs chewed it or something. No one takes responsibility, and that's who Mr. Nobody is, the one you blame for all the things you've done and don't want to admit. They're silent. But here's the thing. They're not content to be disciples of Jesus. Think about that for a second. You're traveling with the most well-known rabbi of the day. You're part of the entourage of the man who has been healing lepers, casting out demons, and doing this incredible teaching that thousands have flocked to hear. There have been crowds of over ten to 15,000 people that Jesus has fed with a couple of fish and a couple of loaves. But they're not content to be his disciples. They had to be the greatest disciple. Chrysostom, I think, is the first. He's one of the church fathers, but 
I think he's one of the first to say that pride is the mother of all sins. Meaning that when if we go back to the illustration of the iceberg, which I should have put up here today, uh, I neglected to do that. We see all of the surfacey sins, right? You know, but what gives birth to all of those sins? What's beneath the surface that you can't see? Pride. To be swollen in one's estimate of oneself. Pride. Gives birth to this desire to be the greatest disciple, which puts you at odds with the other 11 disciples who want to be the greatest disciple themselves. That's what's going on. Pride is at work deep within the hearts of these disciples, and then these words that come out of their mouths are mere reflections of what's deep within their hearts, as Jesus has taught us already. For instance, if we go, there's two passages in the New Testament that uh, quote an Old Testament passage, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And if we look at the context of those particular instances of that uh, repetition, we find that in James 4, it follows the idea of worldly wisdom, which is part of what gives birth to all of these conflicts, these fights that were were going on in this church that James was writing to. Because they thought that their desires were the most important desires and should be satisfied. And your desires, your interests, are not all that important and can take second place to my desires. That's what James James is getting at. We see something similar in 1 Peter chapter 5. The problem there is that pride was driving rebellion against authority within the church and by extension within the home and by extension within the workplace. The notion that I know better than you. And so therefore, your decision does not have to be obeyed by me. Pride. Pride. Pride is like bad breath. Everybody knows you have it, but you. You're usually the last to know. And because we have someone else from New Hampshire here today, I'm not going to point anybody out, but I was reminded of the time when I moved to Florida. And people said to me, that's an interesting accent you've got. And I said, What do you mean I have an accent? You're the one with the accent. (laughs) That's the way pride functions. Everybody else has an accent. Well, obviously I do too. It's just a different one. But when I'm in New Hampshire, I sound like everyone else. Maybe not so much anymore since it's been 30 years, but you understand. So... As we think about Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali didn't simply want to be a great fighter. He wanted, by pride, to be the greatest fighter. 
And he didn't simply want to be the greatest fighter. He wanted everyone to know and acknowledge he was the greatest fighter. That can drive you to heights of excellence as a boxer. But try being married to such a man. And many a woman tried. And many a woman failed. And so as you think about boxing, Muhammad Ali did really well. He made a lot of money. He was infamous and famous and all of that stuff because, well, some people didn't like him. But he wasn't always a good friend, a good husband, a good father, a good person. And so unbelief believes the lies of our pride. That's sort of the answer (laughs) to the question that I posed earlier. Unbelief does believe the wrong things. It's not the absence of any belief. It's the presence of the wrong belief. In this case, the lies of our pride. So how does Jesus address the pride of his disciples? There it is. I mean, they're not really acknowledging it, but there it is. It's the big matzo ball in the room. Pride is a deadly sin. It is the mother of sins. Normally we want to warn and rebuke the arrogant person before they bring their soul to ruin. But what is interesting here is that Jesus doesn't fly into a rage. Jesus sat down and called the twelve to himself. He sat down because, I believe, that's what a rabbi do when, did when he was about to teach. Jesus is about to teach them in a, a, a slightly different synagogue. I mean, he's got quorum. <laughs> he has enough men in the room. And Jesus is gathering them, synagoguing them to instruct them because they're deadly wrong. He instructs them. He's not scolding them or simply scolding them. He's not rejecting them outright. But he wants to show them that there's a better way. And we have to frame this within the context of the fact that his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. It is not like the kingdoms of men. Jesus here is patient with the twelve, as he was patient with just about everyone he met. Let's keep in mind, as we think about what Jesus says here, that God knows how to humble the proud. That's why in our community Bible reading this week, we we looked at Daniel 4, we looked at Daniel 5, and, and we looked at Nebuchadnezzar, who even though he was warned about what would happen, a year later he still says, isn't this an awesome thing I have done? I'm the greatest king that's ever walked the face of the earth. And he became like an animal for, a, for seven years. Warned. 
He did not repent. Warned. He sinned and was humbled. But then in the very next chapter, we have Belshazzar, his son, who knows what happened to his father. Okay? And what does he do? The same dumb thing. (laughs) Because pride tells you it's only the other people who do this. It's not me. It's only other people that fall into this trap. It's only other people that struggle with their pride. I'm really as good as I say. It's pride that blinds us to the wretchedness of our souls. And it did to Nebuchadnezzar and his son, Belshazzar. And uh, it didn't take a year for Belshazzar to be humbled. He lost the kingdom that very night to Darius the Mede. But see how Jesus tries to gently humble these apostles. He's not stripping them of power, but he's speaking to them about what power really is. If anyone would be great or first, so in other words, hey, 12, you. Want to know what greatness is? The great one must be last of all and servant of all. It's the upside down. It's an inverted kingdom. It's like, a, like walking in Escher's world, if you're familiar with that painter, where everything seems topsy-turvy and not quite right. The problem is not that Jesus' kingdom is upside down, but... These kingdoms are upside down. Okay? Greatness is usually seen as having high position and therefore being served by a high number of people. Which is what the disciples wanted. They wanted to be, have an exalted position by which others would do their bidding and they would not have to do the bidding of others. Think about it in terms of Rome. Who was great in Rome? The people who were high on the scale. And one of the the horrifying things of Rome is that your place in the social standing mattered in almost anything. Because you here could do almost anything you wanted to people who were down here under you especially if you were a free man. You could pretty much have any woman you wanted, any child you wanted, anything. But here's the rub. You're under all of these people who can do to you almost anything they want to. That's how empires like Rome existed. That's how earthly kingdoms exist. You begin to fall into the kingdom of me or the kingdom of self. And it operates under this function of, well, this is where I am, and everyone who's under me must obey me, and I need to watch out for those people who are above me because, you know, they might make me do something I don't want to do. 
The kingdom of Jesus says this, Romans 12. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Similar to what we find in Philippians 2. Considering the interests of others and not yourself. Not functioning out of conceit, but out of functioning out of humble love towards one another. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is about choosing to be on the bottom, not forced on the bottom by other people. It's about humbling yourself, not being humbled or humiliated by the bully or the person more powerful than you. It's about choosing to descend, in a sense, into greatness. But it's not just about choosing to be on the lowest level, it's also about service. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom is about serving, not being served. Great people, in other words, are those who serve other people. People who take the low position and and perhaps do the jobs that most others would find beneath them. And that's the reality of humility. Humility doesn't say that job, that task is beneath me. How dare you? Husbands, most of you, I will assume, perhaps falsely. Children, thank your wives and your moms. Who cleans the toilets? Imagine a mother going, that is beneath me. Mothers often take the lowest position in the family and serve the greatest number of people. And that's part of why the Proverbs 31 woman is called blessed at the city gate. Because she's not about bossing around everybody else, but a godly woman often takes a place of service. And so should godly men. Don't read this into, read anything into this where I'm trying to put women down or anything like that. I'm just saying, using that as an example. Godly men also aren't concerned about something being beneath them. Put the dishes away? Oh my goodness. Fold my clothes? What we see in Philippians 2 is that Jesus, being in the form of God, having a status so high we cannot conceive of it, has humbled himself, not simply taking the form of a man, but taking the form of a servant and was obedient, not just part of the way, but was obedient 
unto death and death upon a cross. And why does he have to die on the cross? Because we're so arrogant. That to rescue us from our pride, that's what he must do. And this Jesus does that willingly. He does not want your pride to destroy you and the people around you. And so that's why he has come. And that's why he rescues us through this saving sacrifice as well as this example of how we're to live, because that's exactly how Paul sets it up. Have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, and that was stop clinging to rights and start serving. And so Jesus can gently humble the Christian. Jesus can gently teach them how to serve others even when it hurts. Because usually when it hurts... Is pride. And so for Jesus, greatness is measured by serving, not being served. But Jesus isn't done. How else does he challenge our pride? We see this in 36 and 37. Jesus calls a child to himself. This is a house. And so uh, this may have been one of Peter's kids. We don't know exactly whose house it is. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a child who lived there. He puts this child in the midst of them and taking them, meaning this child, in his arms. Embraces this child. That's important when we think about what is going to be talked about here. Some people use service okay, to gain power and influence in a stratified society like Rome. Okay. So here we have a picture of a guy in a different stratified society. Some of you might be familiar with Thomas Barrow. For those of you who aren't, he's a character on Downton Abbey. And Thomas Barrow was a, what's called a footman who served in the house of the earl. And Thomas Barrow was notorious, before they tried to make him a sympathetic character, I don't know why, but anyway, he was notorious for his scheming and his attempts to become the butler. Not the butler, sorry, the valet. Why? Because the valet serves the earl directly. The valet has privileged access to the earl that the footman and others do not have. And when you serve the earl well, you gain status. Well, you have a higher status anyway than the other servants. But also, you, you might get paid back something one day. You might have some need of yours, and you have the ear of the earl. Serving to get, serving to win reward, to have payment in kind of, of some sort. And, and that's why in the early seasons of Downton Abbey, nobody, I think, liked Thomas Barrow because he was a schemer. 
The reason Jesus brings a child into this equation is that children had no status. Children can't give you wealth. Children can't elevate you and make you more of a higher status because of your love and service to them. In other words, when you serve a child, what you're doing is you're serving the interests of the child, not simply to exert power over them, hopefully, but also not expecting, really, to get anything in return. That is not how it was in Rome. Children were not valued in Rome. Children were not generally cared for in Rome. Children were often exploited in Rome, just as they were in Greece. It was not easy to be a child in Rome because there were many predators and abusers of children. Jesus here is talking about receiving them, embracing them, for their good, offering hospitality to them, protection to them, hope for them. That's what he means when he, but when he says, whoever receives one such child in my name, that person is in fact receiving Christ. Because as we see in Matthew 25, at the scene of the separation of the sheep and the goats, Jesus talks about the least of these and, and talks about how the sheep have, have given to the least of these. And they're like, what? Huh? What are you talking about, Jesus? And he says, what you have done to the least of these, you have done to me because of Jesus' union, in, you know, the union with Christ. And the goats go, what do you mean we never did this? Well, the goats excluded the least of these because they were attending to the greatest of these. But it's not just Jesus you receive. You also receive the Father who sent the Son to be the Savior, to be the shepherd, to be the one who identifies with the most lowly in society. So Jesus does, in fact, identify with the lowly. Jesus does, in fact, identify with the poor. Jesus does, in fact, identify with the humble. Jesus is not hanging out with the society elite. If you think about who he's with, he's with a bunch of fishermen. He's with an insurrectionist. How's, how's that for being on the outside of all the social circles, right? But then there's the tax collector. Even worse, he has money, but he's despised by everybody. Jesus wasn't courting the scribes. Jesus wasn't courting the Sanhedrin. Jesus was spending his time with ordinary, often poor people who had lots of problems. If we go back to James... Not the chapter 4, but this time the chapter 2. What we find is that the early church, at least the one that James was writing to, struggled with giving preference to the rich. They were practicing a form of favoritism. 
Why would they give preference to the rich? I mean, James talks about how the rich were the ones who devoured them. Why in the world are they sucking up to the rich? Well, just as I talked about, they want the patronage of the rich. They're courting favor with the rich. That poor person that you ask to sit on the floor over there, that you give the lowest spot to, that's someone who can't do anything for you. And so you stick them on the margins. Well, in the kingdom of Jesus, that person is very important. And we need to move them from the margins to the center. And sometimes the people we think are most important really aren't. Jesus, again, back to Philippians 2, has all this power. Jesus has all this privilege. But what does he do? He empties himself of it. He gives it up in order to serve the lowest of the low, not the elite. Jesus, if you stuck him in America, wouldn't be going to D.C. Well, I guess if he went to D.C., it would be the areas of D.C. that are broke, that are impoverished, that are crime-ridden. Jesus would be going to the reservations. Jesus would be going to Appalachia. He wouldn't be as concerned about the corridors of power. Because Jesus did not seek the corridors of power of his own day. But here's the thing. Just as we sang, I can't remember which song it was. But just as we, but, you know, as we talk about from First Peter, Jesus chooses to share his status with us. Or as it says in uh, 2 Corinthians 9, he who was rich made himself poor that he might enrich us. He shares his glory. He enriches his people with spiritual riches. Don't mistake me. I didn't suddenly become Joel Osteen or Benny Hinn. He shares his status with us. Brothers and sisters, that's the heart of the gospel. That people like tax collectors and insurrectionists and ordinary fishermen who are blasphemers and prideful people, people who have nothing are brought and made sons of the king. Forgiven of all their sins. Made righteous in the eyes of the king and made to sit with him in the throne room. Not as a plebe, not as a slave, but as a son. And so for Jesus, greatness serves those without status, not to get status. So if we kind of Bring, try to bring these threads together, we see that Jesus slays our pride and teaches us to serve. 
Well, Muhammad Ali may very well have been the greatest boxer who ever lived. I think I'd take him over Floyd Mayweather any day. But nonetheless, his pride, his swollen view of self-importance destroyed his personal life. He, he seems to reflect the virtues of the kingdom of self which forms the basis for the kingdoms of men. But the kingdom of Jesus values humility, which is then manifested in serving everyone, even or especially those who have nothing to offer you in return. Do we really believe this? How much are we still shaped by that kingdom of self instead of the kingdom of Jesus? The answer to that question reveals how much we still need the Jesus who forfeits it all to save us completely. The Jesus who came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The answer to this question reveals how much we still need him to gently humble us so that we serve as the least of these, not as lords over others. Oh, how we need Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we think about this text, it is uh, if we can't see ourselves in the, the shoes of these disciples, have mercy on us. Help us to see the ways in which we share a similar mindset. We ask for the pardon of Christ. We ask as well for the work of Christ in us so that we become increasingly humble, that we become increasingly willing to serve, that we become increasingly less concerned about status. That we rejoice in, in that we actually have the greatest status, and that is sons of God, without rank, equally loved cherished by an eternal father who sent a son to die for us. Help that to nurture within us a willingness to serve, to protect, to cherish. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.